Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. In 1972, women's advocates formed in St. Paul as a divorce rights information center housed in a legal assistance office. Many of the calls received were from women seeking help in leaving abusive partners. Soon it became clear that these women were often in desperate need of a safe place to stay, something that was in short supply. Within two years, sufficient funds were raised to make a down payment on a house in St. Paul becoming the first shelter in the nation for survivors and their children. I'm Jaren Peterson-Dean, and with me today are three staff members from Women's Advocates, Estelle Brower, Executive Director, Mary Beth Becker-Loth, Community Education and Outreach Manager, and Roxy Walter, Manager of Shelter Advocacy. Estelle, Mary Beth, and Roxy, welcome and congratulations to Women's Advocates on its golden anniversary year, 50 years. Let's get started. I'd like each of you to share something about the organization that you think is particularly important for people to know. And Roxy, would you mind starting us off? Of course, thank you. Well, I would like for people to know is is any one thing that stands out to me is the diversity. There is so much diversity uh, and so much acceptance of the diversity that is at Women's Advocates. And the fact that everyone is heard, everyone is listened to, no one is judged. We accept uh, individuals as they are, as they come to us, and we work with them knowing that They are the experts and they know what's best for them. Uh, They know what they want for their journey. They know where they've been and they know exactly where they want to go. And we allow them the time to teach us how to support them in their journey. And Mary Beth, what about you? I think what I always think is important for people to know about women's advocates Yes, we started the legal helpline 50 years ago, but that is not a long time. Really, in the grand scheme of things, thinking about women's advocates started as as a legal helpline. That was 1971 that no-fault divorce became legal, and, and that's just not a long time. My mother was born in 1970. That is within her lifetime. Estelle, what would you like to add? I would add that... Because of the work that Roxy and our other advocates do every day, and Mary Beth and her outreach team doing work in the community, that we have just a wide array of services and supports available for people who are experiencing domestic violence or for people who know people who are experiencing domestic violence. We're here and we're we're here, we're here for women, absolutely. And primarily the people that we serve are women. 
But I think it's really important for us to, to be clear about the fact that we serve victim survivors, all genders, all backgrounds, all identities. We are here as a, a safe place, a place when someone's in, a, in crisis to come here and take a breath and literally get safe from whatever it is they need to be safe from. Saying that, I need to also say that we are not always going to have a bed available. And that's one of the tragedies of the system that we work in is that there are not nearly enough shelter beds available for people who need them. However, a call always makes sense to women's advocates if you're in trouble because we may not have a bed available. We may know someone who does. We may have a space available in a hotel. We may have other kinds of resources, including housing resources available to help. So just to get that word out about the kind of welcoming place that we are and the safe haven that we are for victim survivors. Thank you. And Estelle, just for our listeners to have kind of an understanding, how many beds are available in your facility? We have a total of 17 beds here at Women's Advocates, which might seem like a small number. And actually, again, relative to the need, it is a fairly small number. We are one of the largest domestic violence shelters, however, in the Twin Cities and in the state. Currently, we're generally filling 15 of those beds for for technical reasons that have to do with COVID and and keeping people safe in their spaces. But we we have those 15 bedrooms and we have in those bedrooms space for families. So we have room for 15 victim survivors and their children. And those numbers of children can range can range from a few on up to many. Is there a particular geographical area that women's advocates serves primarily, or could it be statewide, just depending on what's available? I'll, I'll just jump in on that one too. Primarily it is metro. Um, primarily it's, it's folks from the metro area that we serve. But we're part of a statewide network that's called Day One. And the day one network includes all the domestic violence shelters in the entire state. And so we can easily access their database at any time if we don't have space to find out where there might be a space available somewhere else in the state. And we do that. I would defer to Mary Beth and Roxy on this, but I think we do that fairly frequently. So we may be housing victim survivors from a distant community in Minnesota And we may send people to a distant community in Minnesota, just depending on where the space happens to be available. Could you talk about how you came to this work? Maybe Roxy, we'll start with you again. Well, I am a victim survivor myself. Being a survivor of domestic violence and during the time that I was uh, in the abusive situation, there were not as many services as there are now. And there were not those individuals that I could turn to. You know, I I grew up believing that a wife should stay in her place. A woman should stay in her place. And, you know, the man was the king of the house, so to speak. And you do what it took to please your husband, that kind of thing. And domestic violence wasn't talked about a lot. It was was acceptable when, when I was growing up. And just knowing that being a survivor and knowing the services that I wished I had uh, suffering through it, I made it a point to get involved, get connected with whoever would provide any services to anyone who suffered what I'd suffered and be a part of it. 
to try to be a part of the change and to try to be a part of the hope and the help that so many victim survivors need. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Roxy. Mary Beth, what about you? I came to this work uh, after doing sexual violence prevention at my college. And I found that even though I I knew a lot of people who were talking about domestic and sexual violence, um, I still didn't think enough people were talking about it. And, and I wanted to be one of those people who, who wouldn't shut up about the fact that domestic violence exists. It impacts people and we have a duty to work with survivors and keep spreading awareness. And the best place for me to be around people who share that love and share that enthusiasm was at a domestic violence shelter. So I showed up to Women's Advocates and Roxy let me in the door. <laughs> Estelle, what about you? How did you come to this work? Before I go there, I I do just want to say that we have a a number of victim survivors working for us. And it's not a requirement of the job. And it's not something that that we dig into people's backgrounds about or need to know about necessarily. But it's, I think it, I think that Roxy's story is a it's it's a it's a wonderful story because I think it's a it's a great example of what does tend to draw people to this work. There's a there's a fire in the belly that comes from having been there and from wanting to just pay it forward, you know, to to just support and help anyone anyone that that victim survivors can help. And I just have so much respect um, for that and and for those stories. What brought me to the work, um, I, I grew up in a time and in a setting, a small rural community, very traditional, um, pretty conservative, where I was seeing, the, you know, maybe not so different from what Roxy was describing, a, a, a culture of, of um, women deferring to their husbands, the man, the king of the household, um, you know, the 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 June Cleaver sort of um, you know, way of being, and I knew there were, I I knew from very early on there was something about that that wasn't quite right. And fortunately, I had an older sister who kind of helped wake me up, and so I became a very a very early feminist. Um, but but then also as a young professional, I had the opportunity to work at the state legislature and got exposed to the the programs that we have in this state that we had even then that was that was back in the late 80s, um, that we had even then to support domestic violence shelters, um, to support sexual assault programs, and the funding that was going into those programs. And I just remember being so excited to find that out, that we that we were doing that in this state. And, and now, of course, decades later, I've learned that we were, Minnesota was a true leader in terms of domestic violence policy and putting money into programs. There's never enough, but at least Minnesota was out front. So I got interested in it back then, fast forward many decades. Um, and I worked largely in healthcare, but I had a I had a, a big thing, a big hard tragic thing happen in my life. And it caused me to do some, to stop and do some reassessing about what I wanted to do. And I finally came to I want to work for an organization that has women in the mission statement. And I don't exactly know what that's going to look like, 
Um, but that's where I'm starting. And it wasn't long after I identified that goal that this job came along. And I didn't necessarily think it would be domestic violence, but but it felt right. And um, it's been an incredible learning experience. I have to imagine that much has changed over time in the world of domestic violence and for women's advocates specifically. What would you highlight as significant improvements that you've seen in your experience? Well, we're not the only shelter anymore, which is huge. We were the first, but it's it doesn't really mean anything to be the first if you're the only one, right? Um, and so I'm I'm so grateful that over these these past 50-ish years, there more of us have have shown up. Um, and and I'm really impressed by the increase in funding and the increase in awareness. I think if the women who if if we could talk to and sometimes we do I guess talk to the women who started that women's advocates legal line, I think they would tell us that they couldn't have imagined something like the Violence Against Women Act being being passed in the 90s. Um, and so I'm I'm so grateful for all the legislative um, advancements, but I also think on a on an organizational level we have really grown. Um, we are not strictly a shelter anymore. We I mean the shelter is the heart of our work. It's why we do what we do. But we have crisis prevention services now. So where I am in outreach, we're able to not just shelter survivors, but we're able to get out into the community and make sure that fewer people need to access shelter. Um, we we do outreach with the goal of preventing people from, from being abusive or from experiencing abuse. And so that's a big improvement. And we we also have our housing stability program now so we can we can see people through to stable housing after shelter um and that's just an amazing growth so of course there's a flip side to that question are there things that should have changed over time and haven't or at least not to the degree that is truly needed as executive director, I just always have money on my mind. <laughs> and I I was going to respond to, to your first question by saying there's a legitimacy that funders, funders see this cause as legitimate now. And I have heard stories from the early days about the battles that women who were in philanthropy at that time had to go through in order to convince men that this was even a legitimate cause and that it wasn't something that was just a private matter that could be solved at home. And why should we be putting our money into? So, so that was, that has changed. Thank goodness, but it hasn't changed enough. We still have to fight really hard. And one of the things we've had to fight hard on, and I do feel we're making some progress on this is to help funders understand the connection between domestic violence and homelessness. I think there is still remaining sort of the idea that if someone is, is in an unsafe situation, that all they need to do is get out of it for a few days. 
so that he can settle down and then she can go back home and all will be well or something. I, I'm not quite sure what, what it is that people believe, but it's been a bit of a battle to make that case that almost everyone that we serve in shelter is in fact homeless and is going to need housing, safe, sustainable housing when they leave us. And so this is part of why we have worked really hard to build our, our housing program. And it's starting to change, but it hasn't changed enough. All, all we can do is just keep making the case. I really wasn't aware how domestic abuse and domestic violence impact homelessness and vice versa. So I appreciate that you're making that case. I'm glad we can provide you this opportunity to do that. And hopefully that's a main takeaway from this, this episode. Are there specific stories or situations that you can share to illustrate how things have changed or not as experienced by survivors of domestic violence? Maybe Roxy, I don't know if you have any off the top of your head, but stories of actual victim survivors. So our stories of victim survivors, you know, I, without giving identifying information or anything, of course, I wouldn't do that. I look at the, the fact, and, and this is kind of piggyback on what Estelle was saying, homelessness, how the two are twins, so to speak, how that there is now because of the work that victim advocates do. Survivors don't have to necessarily go back to the situation of the abuse because there are those who are fighting for the fact that someone shouldn't have to go back to an abusive situation because they don't have somewhere else to go. And a lot of times that, that, that happens, and it happened more so before this time. But I think that because there are those who are fighting, there are those who are standing with victim survivors, there are those who actually believe victim survivors, and there are those who don't punish an, a victim survivor for being in an abusive relationship who does not judge that person uh, based on their choice of a partner or what have you. Um, and I think because there are those advocates and those who are, are fighting for, for the, the cause, so to speak, that there are those opportunities for victim survivors to step away and to stay away. And, and there was a time when that wasn't even a, an option. You know, either you're going to stay here for as long as the shelter would allow. And a lot of times you end up going back to the abuser that you didn't want to, but you had nowhere else to go. And because you probably lost your job through all of this, and you probably lost friends and supports through this, that you didn't have anyone to turn to or any resources that you could go and say, I have this money, I have this, and I can start over here. So those resources a lot of times are in place. And yes, more money is always needed. Those resources, some are in place. And because victim survivors know that there are those who are fighting for them, there are those who will not give up on them. There are those who are saying, I got your back. You know, I'm, I'm here for you. We're here for you. We're going to walk this journey with you. There are those who are saying these things to the survivors and it's, it's believed by the survivors that there are people here who haven't given up on you. There are people here who want to see you happy. 
There are people here who want to see your children continue school and be successful. There are people here who want you to be able to get up every day with a smile on your face, saying that I'm not afraid that if I say the wrong thing, if I look a certain way, that I will be abused or punished as a result of it. What do statistics tell us about domestic violence in our community? Are they unique in Minnesota in any way? Do they disproportionately um, show connections between communities of color or, you know, socioeconomic status? Are they similar to the national picture in Minnesota? I can answer that one because I spit these statistics out all the time in presentations. The, the rates of domestic violence are really the same throughout any racial or ethnic demographic, any socioeconomic or tax bracket. Domestic violence is something that doesn't really care what color you are or what background you come from or how much money you have. People who are abusing come from all sorts of different backgrounds. So there's no one race or ethnicity or um, ability or disability population that experiences domestic violence like at a particularly higher rate. It's just that maybe ex having those identities or having that experience of marginalization might make it more difficult for you to access supportive services. And maybe if you have a little more money, you might have the ability to access stable housing a little more quickly. So it really doesn't discriminate based on, on those kinds of demographics, which is to say it is very common for everybody <laughs> everywhere, unfortunately. The statistic for Minnesota is, is that, you know, Target Field in downtown Minneapolis, we could fill Target Field 17 times just with Minnesota women who have experienced domestic or sexual violence. And that's just women. And that's just in Minnesota. We could fill that whole baseball stadium 17 times over. So it is very likely, like for people listening to this podcast, it's very likely that they've got somebody in their lives who has experienced sexual or domestic violence. And it's probably equally likely that they have somebody in their lives who has been abusive or has perpetrated violence against somebody else. It's very common. And the statistics in Minnesota really mimic the, the national average. So we're pretty on par with the rest of the country in terms of statistics. And the statistic is it's very, very common. I think I showed some of my own personal misconceptions, even in how I asked that question, which probably our listeners can identify with. And Mary Beth, what you said, feeling target field 17 times, that's staggering. And I think I know that myself and many other people have a lot to learn. I thank you for explaining that. Of course. Before I really got into the work and before I had experienced some domestic or sexual violence myself, I really did think, oh, this is something that happens to other people. It doesn't happen to people like me. It doesn't happen to people I know. And I think a lot of us have that thought, like, oh, this is this is a problem, just like gun violence, Jaren. Like we think it's it's not gonna happen to me, or it, it's it couldn't happen to somebody like me or to my community. And then it does because it, it can. 
it's a really common experience. There's not just one group of people that domestic violence happens to. It could affect anybody. Well, it's like we put that in your head to bring up, Mary Beth, because my next question actually is about the prevalence of guns and domestic violence. As a survivor of gun violence, that's been a big focus of my own advocacy efforts. And I have to imagine that the increased prevalence of guns has an impact on domestic violence. Could you speak to that? Well, I'm I'm really grateful that the the boyfriend loophole is being closed. The boyfriend loophole is was allowing perpetrators of domestic violence who were not married to their victims to keep access to their firearms. And with that loophole being closed in Minnesota and around the country now, I'm hopeful at least that we can get some guns out of the hands of people who are using abuse in their relationships. But I'll also say that even the presence of a firearm in the home is a really, like when we do safety planning, when Roxy and I are doing safety planning, um, whether we're in community or in shelter with survivors, the question of was there, does your abuser have access to a firearm or was there a gun in the home is a very important question for us because simply having a gun in the home makes the likelihood of an intimate partner homicide occurring much, much higher. Even just having it at home, whether the abuser has used the gun or not, can be a a tactic of intimidation for a victim survivor. So guns are, I mean, in addition to causing acute physical harm and, and oftentimes death, just the presence of guns in the home alone is a huge I would argue a, a an act of psychological terrorism against a victim survivor. And so the two issues are really intertwined. What is something that you wish more people understood about domestic violence? I'm going to jump in on this one, but then I really want both Mary Beth and Roxy to answer this one too. This is kind of a direct follow-on to what you and Mary Beth were just talking about, about gun violence, which is huge. And one of the things I was doing while you were talking is Googling the reports that Violence Free Minnesota does every year on domestic violence homicides. So every year they do a report, they include photographs if they have them, and they include at least a little bit of the story of the person who was murdered in Minnesota. I'm not going to remember the the numbers from recent years, but the numbers are always stunning. The numbers of people who die from domestic violence homicides in the state and the lion's share of them are are gun related. Not all of them, but a lot of them are gun related. So I agree with everything that Mary Beth said about that. But Kind of a natural segue from talking about that kind of violence is talking about domestic violence that isn't physical, but that is emotional abuse or that is financial abuse or is intimate partner. I'm going to stumble on what we call this revenge porn. So, you know, social media, wow, it gives us all kinds of new ways to abuse people. Um, All the many ways that people who, who use power and control in relationships use those to manipulate, to isolate, to gaslight, to do all those things that are just as damaging in their own way as the kind of physical violence that results in a bruise or or some other kind of physical damage. So and that's been such a learning journey for me in my years at Women's Advocates. And, and a lot of it has to do with the other two people on this Zoom 
are people who understand this intimately and who are who are teaching about it. Mary Beth and her team are teaching about that in the community and, and way beyond our, our community about all the different forms that abuse can take and to not assume that if you're not feeling right in, in your relationship, but you're not getting hit or, or anything to not assume that, well, everything must be okay, then I'm not being abused because I'm not being hit. There are so many ways that abuse makes itself known. Roxy, what about you? What is something you wish more people understood about domestic violence? It could happen to anyone. Domestic abuse and domestic violence does not discriminate. It does not care if you are, are wealthy or if you're poor or if you're black or if you're white or if you're any other, uh, any other ethnic group. It, it, domestic violence does not discriminate. It's universal. It could happen to anyone. It, it, it's not somewhere peeking around and looking for someone who's, who is, is assumed to be vulnerable. It's, it's not like that. Domestic abuse, and like Estelle was saying, it's not just the physical. It is, it, it is so, there's so many faces of domestic abuse. And, and if someone, like uh, Estelle said, people assume that oh, if you're not being hit, then okay, so you're okay, you'll get over it. But it's still domestic abuse. Estelle? You will be leaving the organization this year. What are you especially proud of accomplishing during the last five years? And may I ask what's next for you? I am planning on leaving. Actually, not this year, though. Beginning of next year. So I'm, I'm splitting hairs here because I'm planning on leaving in January. It's been an amazing time. This five and a half years, there's been so, so much growth that's happened at Women's Advocates. And when I think about what's been accomplished during these years by an amazing team of folks, getting through those early months of the pandemic, the first oh, 15 to 18 months, getting through it um, would, would be a huge accomplishment in and of itself. But this organization managed to get through it, keep everybody healthy. At some point, maybe maybe on it separately at, over a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, we'll talk about what it took to get through it. Because one of the things we did was moved all of our shelter residents to a hotel, which is a pretty radical thing to do for for quite a number of months. But it's what it's what we chose to do to keep everybody safe, and it worked. So this organization not only got through it, but really did a great job of caring for victim survivors, keeping them safe and also actually growing our programs. Our outreach program grew by leaps and bounds during that period because, because of an incredibly nimble staff, people, and at that point it was mainly one person um, who did a major pivot and said, okay, instead of running around in the community and making presentations to schools and businesses, we're gonna put everything online. And that resulted in us reaching people on six continents with amazing education, support groups, all kinds of things that have grown out of that, that experience. The other thing that has really grown, and we've talked about this a little bit already, is our housing work. The pandemic in some ways helped us raise awareness about that intersection that exists between homelessness and domestic violence. And so it has become more known. And as a result of it becoming more known, and as a result of a lot of hard work by a lot of people here in this organization, our program has grown. 
which means that we are serving far more victim survivors in, and their families in that program than we were five years ago. So to see that kind of growth in the services here, knowing what we've been up against is something that everybody who works for this organization should feel very, very proud of and very good about. And I, I feel good about that. Would you like to tell us what, what's next for you? Well, I, I'm not being coy at all when I say that I'm not sure. I, I plan to take a break. That much I do know. Um, and it, it might be a nice long break. I'm thinking since I'm leaving in, in January, I will probably go on a winter vacation. And then I may just, I may just take a summer off. I do expect that whatever it is that I do next, whether it's a job or whether it's some sort of volunteer work or what, whatever that might look like, that I'm still going to be supporting women and girls in, in one way or another, because that's been a lifelong passion for me. Well, we certainly wish you a long and relaxing vacation and the best of luck in whatever comes next. Before we wrap up, I'd love to hear about your hopes and dreams for women's advocates. I'm hoping that 50 years from now, none of us have jobs to do because domestic violence is over. We did it. We figured it out and it's not happening anymore. I don't know how realistic that is. So I will say that the dream for me is that right now, not everybody who calls for shelter can access shelter in the same phone call because we just don't, Women's Advocates doesn't have the space, the, there are not enough shelter beds in the state or in the country even. And so I think my dream would be that everybody who called for shelter could access it in the same phone call. That would, to me, feel like we really made it. Mine is that women advocates own properties that women and victim survivors can move into permanent housing. That's, that's my, my big dream, big, big dream for women's advocates. And the, the other dream is that we have in place the necessary services to address the dramatic impact that domestic violence have on children. Estelle, what about you? Hopes and dreams? Well, I love both both Mary Beth and Roxy's dreams. And I guess what I would say, just layering on those, is I would love if, if women's advocates and our movement had the resources to be able to truly go upstream, as far upstream as we need to go, um, to, to address the root causes of domestic violence. And to be able to do that in partnership with not only with other domestic violence organizations, but with public health, with the criminal justice system, with peace activists like, like your organization, and with, other, with education, with other partners that are out there that can identify the kinds of stresses that families are facing that can identify and intervene effectively way upstream in those kinds of situations, addressing poverty, institutional racism, the patriarchy, to be honest with you, the patriarchy is a very, very big problem. <laughs> and, and going upstream far enough to be able to get at the roots of some of these problems. And I, I am probably talking about the work of centuries right now, if not 
you know, a millennium or more, but that's the dream. Well, I know I'm the one asking the questions here, but now I'm going to answer my own question and tell you that my hope is that the more conversations are being had about the incredible work you do, the more people understand the value in donating money and supporting the cause and sending those resources that are so desperately needed because it sounds like the work you've done has impacted so many people and continues to do so. And with those resources, that impact could just be exponentially greater. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with before we end our episode? I'd just like to thank you for the work that you do and for providing us this opportunity and this platform to be able to get get the voice and get, get the word out in yet another way. Really appreciate that. I second that. Well, Estelle, Mary Beth, Roxy, thank you so much for being my guests and for the work you do. It is humbling, inspiring, and honestly downright impressive to hear the work of powerful women in action. And I'm grateful to have spent this time with you. I've been talking with Estelle Brower, Mary Beth Becker Loth, and Roxy Walker. You can find more information about women's advocates and domestic violence at www.wadvocates.org. Thank you so much. For listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors. Thank you.